It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. Joining me at the front of the class is Alex Vitale. He's the author of The End of Policing. We've been talking a lot about justice reform on the show for the past couple of episodes. He is the professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. And he has spent nearly 30 years, although he doesn't look it, (laughs) writing about policing and consulting with police departments and human rights organizations all across the country. Welcome to the show for the first time, Alex Vitale. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You're most welcome, Joy. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're going to start where we start with all of our guests by you telling us the story of your first civic action. Yeah, I had to think about it for for a second. It was a while ago. I think the the first kind of real engagement I had with real political participation was in the early 1980s when I was in high school. This was the period of the kind of arms race with the Soviet Union under the Reagan administration. And I was really concerned about this escalation of nuclear tensions and the buildup of our nuclear arsenal and the kind of you know, almost bankrupting of the federal government in the process. And I remember clipping stories out of the newspaper, right, when all you had was printed newspapers and writing letters and eventually connecting up with the group Sane Freeze that wanted to have a freeze in nuclear weapons production. And they supported basically a variety of international treaties And through that, I remember, you know, writing letters and going to meetings. And that was my first real exposure to to personal involvement in political activity. I love it. I love it. Not that many stories about like protesting war or nuclear (laughs) disarmament on the show thus far, which reminds me, I have to have a whole separate conversation about that just just as a civics lesson. But uh, so thanks for that. I have to jot that down. You know, I want to jump right into the conversation because we only have a certain amount of time and I feel like we can, and I and I know you do, have whole like semester lectures about this topic. <laughs> and you and your publisher have offered your book, The End of Policing, as a free ebook, as the protest age that we were in following the death and murder of George Floyd and helping people understand along with other activists who we've also had on the show, talk about changing policing, abolitionist movement, you know, all of the different aspects and the different spectrum that exists, right? So, you know, for all of us, people think that you either have to be abolish all of the police, defund the police, or like love the police, and not that there's this like spectrum of where people are. But I wanted to dive into the conversation particularly as big cities like those of us here in New York and Chicago, all of the headlines we're seeing across the country, even if you don't live here, right, is that 
oh, because we defunded the police, which we didn't do, but because we did this, there's this crime wave, you know, and, you know, murders are happening everywhere. It was something that was discussed on the floor during the voting rights debate, you know, the week before last. And, you know, I feel like kind of in the twilight zone of like, did I miss the period where we defunded or abolished the police, Alex? Like, I don't, I don't know what, what kind of era we are currently in following that uprising that we, that, that folks participated in a couple of summers ago. You know, I think we, we have this tendency to uncritically equate policing and public safety in a very depoliticized sort of way. We just uncritically accept this idea. And the current moment of the last couple of years has forced us, I think, to think a little bit more deeply about how policing is embedded in a set of political relationships, a topic appropriate for your show, right? That policing is one tool that city government can use to attempt to solve problems or to manage problems, to manage political problems, as well as the actual problems of communities. And what the movement has been saying is that too often policing has been the wrong tool. And we have strong evidence for this. We've got research studies. We know what the alternatives would look like. And yet we're often met with a kind of political resistance to these ideas that suggest there's something more than concern about public safety at work here. And I think that what we're really dealing with is a broader politics that says that local officials are refusing to challenge the overall politics of municipal austerity. They've accepted this idea that all local government can do is cut taxes for the rich, subsidize the already successful in hopes that they will stay in their city, that they will create new investments and that some of that wealth will magically trickle down to the rest of us. But what's really happened over this last 40, 50 year period is that to pay for those tax breaks and subsidies, we've defunded mental health services, defunded schools, defunded social services, created mass homelessness, created mass substance abuse problems that aren't adequately addressed. And then policing has been used to manage the problems that grow out of that. And the results have been mass incarceration, police brutality, and you know, the racialized over-policing of communities. And when politicians say, oh no, we can't defund policing because that's the only way we produce safety, what they're saying to those communities is, is that you can't have high quality mental health services. You can't have well-functioning schools. You can't have drug treatment on demand, but you can have more police. And That is inconsistent with the research. It's inconsistent with people's lived experience. And so the backlash is not about public safety. It's about enabling austerity. You know, one of the things that's frustrating about where we are, as as you just laid out, is that 
the conversation is this it exists as if in America there are not places, cities, communities that are sometimes adjacent to those other communities that have a different experience, that have are fully resourced, that have equitable justice practices that are able to put people in treatment. And it is normally, they are wider communities. They are wealthier, wealthier communities, right? Because it's not as if crime doesn't exist, including violent crime, doesn't exist in those communities. We watch American Greed and like all of the <laughs> crime shows, right? And you see, you know, wealthy couple, and, you know, it started off great and then husband murders wife. Like, like, so murder happens in all communities. And yet there is a different, a stark difference in terms of how crime in those communities are handled and what resources exist, what alternatives to incarceration exist, what resources for mental health services and things like that exist versus communities that don't have those resources that are sometimes not even a mile away. And it's a completely different experience in terms of policing. And it frustrates me because, you know, to hear people gas, like, like politicians and, and, and policy experts sort of gaslight us and say, oh, we can't possibly have public safety without cr criminalization of homelessness and mental health and you know, addressing, you know, those small crimes before they come large ones, when we can see not a mile away that that actually occurs already. Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to think about this. One is that, you know, we do have to acknowledge the reality that certain kinds of crime, including, you know, homicides and a lot of violent crimes are heavily concentrated in a fairly small number of neighborhoods that are characterized by deep long-term poverty. And so the conclusion we should draw from that is not that those communities need intensive policing, it's that they need their problems addressed. They need the problems of, of poverty and racial exclusion addressed. The other way to think about it is that when a kid in a wealthy private high school gets caught with marijuana, nobody calls the police because the parents of that young person don't want the police involved in their young person's life, their child's life, because they know nothing good can come of that for their child. They want social services, they want drug treatment, they want mental health counseling, whatever it takes to keep that kid completely separate from the criminal legal system. But in poor communities of color, the police are routinely called because it's, un, it's believed that, well, what that young person needs is not care and support. What they need is threats, punishment, and coercion. And the result is that that young person's life is made demonstrably worse, not just for the short term, but for the long term, because of that involvement in the criminal legal system. So we persist in conceptualizing the problems of poor and non-white communities as problems of moral failure, of inadequacy that need to be dealt with through coercion, threats, and violence, while the problems of wider, wealthier communities are considered either not real problems or problems to be dealt with in more restorative and reformative ways. And that's something that you argue in the book, right, is that the 
policing in general, one, you know, sort of the history and the context of policing in America in general, but then two, that basically the argument is that police forces and policing in America sort of doubles down or reinforces that divide in class and race and gender and sexuality. Well, we make this mistake, right, of thinking that the police exist to neutrally and professionally enforce the law in a way that benefits society in general. And this is kind of misleading. Mostly what police do is produce a notion of order, social order, that has very little to do with the law. If you talk to police officers about how they actually spend their time, or if you ride around in the back of a patrol car, as I have for many decades now, you find that police are mostly managing a set of social disorder problems, landlord-tenant disputes, disputes between neighbors, improperly parked cars, trash, someone making too much noise on the street, you know, perceptions of threatening behavior, a homeless person living in a public park. These are not criminal matters. These are matters of social disorder. And the police job, the job of the police is not to enforce the law in those circumstances. It's to create a certain notion of order. So I'm, I'm currently in, in San Antonio and I pulled up in an intersection and there was a young man holding a sign saying that, you know, he needed money for food and he had a dog with him. And as I'm sitting there, a police officer pulls up and orders him to leave. Well, he hadn't broken any law. This was not a law enforcement initiative. This was police don't want to see homeless people at intersections, and so they drive them away. And in the process, they create the illusion that we live in an orderly, just society, when in fact we live in a society with mass entrenched homelessness at historically high levels that is a sign of a completely broken economic and political system. And the police job there is just to cover up the evidence of that. And so we, we have to also question the, the legal system that undergirds this notion of what order is. You know, the law does not automatically benefit everyone equally. There's a famous 19th century saying, the law in its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges, stealing bread, and begging in the streets. But of course, it's only poor people who need to engage in those behaviors, like the homeless young man that I saw being harassed by police here in San Antonio. The, the harms committed by wealthy people are often legal. Predatory lending practices, uh, failing to pay people overtime. They're either legal or they're not enforced, right? Uh, elected officials poisoning the water supply of entire communities because, you know, it politically is suitable for them or it's a favor to their campaign contributors. You know, the wrecking of the economy in 2008 by high finance didn't result in any legal action, any police action, you know, our lives were not protected. Our well-being was not protected. Mass homelessness was created out of that. And there was no justice. So this idea that we can just call on the police to produce justice, to police 
produce safety, to have the law enforced, is just an incredibly naive understanding of what police really do. We'll be right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome when back to Sunday right. Civics. I'm your host, LJ Williams. I think, and we've talked, we've had state's attorneys, district attorneys on and talk about them as prosecutors and their, mm-hmm. some of the, what are, they're deemed called progressive prosecutors currently and how they're trying to reduce prosecuting those, what are called low level offenses that really don't do much in terms of public safety. It clogs up the system, you know, in terms of additional cases and also clogs up time for police officers to actually solve the things that we all are concerned about, whether that be murder, you know, solving rape cases, which is, you know, another huge, you know, outcry of the number of rape cases that are not solved in this country. And, you know, to your point in terms of what police officers do in general, I'm sure you saw, you know, some time ago, the story or the investigation regarding a small Alabama town that had basically, you know, quadrupled, (laughs) you know, not only its police force, but also its spending in creating this atmosphere that was just basically finding people, ticketing people as much as possible bringing money into the city that then would go back into the police department for them to have like a tank because you need a tank for them to to, like, you know, give tickets for like flashing your lights at dark, you know, at dark. And and the, the, how much of that is, because we see those, those instances and, you know, everybody is outraged about it. And that, that ties to, you know, previous cases that were brought up about towns like this across the country. Are those isolated incidents or is that a trend? Is that to your point in terms of the this misnomer of what we think police officers do on a regular basis, are they more like that in sort of just ticketing and creating an economy for small towns and cities across the country and not really spending a lot of their time investigating crime or preventing it? Well, as, as, as is often the case, we can count on Alabama to be an extreme example of racialized injustice, but this is not unique to Alabama or even the South. I mean, the federal government report about what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, found essentially the same thing, right? And this is true in many parts of the country, especially for small towns, is that the policing and court system is a revenue center. It's a way of of generating resources to run city government so that they don't have to charge business and property taxes and to allow for the patterns of kind of white flight suburbanization that create these little separate municipalities and these revenue-driven police forces. But in a way, there's nothing particularly new about this either. Uh, 
the history of policing is a history of creating certain kinds of labor market conditions through the criminalization of certain kinds of behaviors, whether it's vagrancy or homelessness. Look at the system of convict leasing that existed through the second half of the 19th and the early decades of the 20th century in much of the South, in which any black person, and this was almost exclusively applied to black people, who couldn't prove they had a job or who had committed some other kind of offense would be put into a criminal legal system that would then lease out their labor at almost no cost to employers to do dirty, dangerous, and difficult work that they couldn't rely on regular labor to perform. Working in mines, building railroads through swamps, work that was often incredibly dangerous and resulted in, in often tens of thousands of deaths. Uh, and so this, this process of using the criminal legal system to exploit and extort money out of already vulnerable and mostly non-white populations has always been a central feature of our criminal legal system. You know, reading the story, I thought in, in Ferguson was the city I was <laughs> was the city I was thinking about. I was like, I feel like I've read this before. Like, I feel like you know we've been here before, in terms of. And, and then, what is the real recourse then, besides you know reporters or others, you know, bringing it up to attention for people to have outrage? Reading the story even made you more outraged because even other law enforcement agencies in the surrounding area was like, oh yeah, they've been a problem for some time, right? Like people know what's going on, but there's no one, you know, even another law enforcement agency to say, I've also had problems, you know, in that area, but not sort of addressing it. And are, are then laws lax in the accountability and checking police departments such as this, I would I would assume that this should rise to a, a, a federal prosecution level, right? The Justice Department or somebody to say, hey, you can't do this, <laughs> you know, they're building up this police department and like for a town that's like 1,400 people, you know, th this is insane. Who is policing <laughs> then those entities who are out of control. Look, it's possible that there might be some some legal strategies that could be pursued. Things like debtors' prisons should be, you know, are illegal and should be challenged. But this is a political problem, and it's ultimately not a problem of the criminal legal system. It's a it's a problem of economic injustice, because a lot of this rests on the bedrock of the fact that wider, wealthier communities don't want to pay taxes and they want to shift that economic burden onto poor and non-white people in their communities through criminalization. And it's a way of saying, oh, well, you did something wrong, so you should pay a burden. But they've created the wrongs in a way that that burden is always going to fall disproportionately on certain communities and they enforce it in a certain and so and then, what's, need, well, what's needed is a politics of tax justice that says that people need to pay their fair share. And that, that means that we have to intervene at the state and federal level. You know, look at the way we fund schools. It's one of the most fundamental economic injustices in American society. 
is that we allow school funding to be controlled by the local tax base. And then we allow people to create all kinds of little separate communities so they can wall themselves off from any responsibility for educating anybody but their own small group of kids. And then they benefit from the advantages that those young people receive from, from getting a much higher quality education. And this, this, more than almost any other factor, reproduces race and class inequality in American society. And yet there is absolutely no one in American political life talking about this issue. You know, it, it would seem to me that these kinds of issues like the Alabama case, the Ferguson case, are issues that should be, I know people like the, the, the fantasy and fairy tale of bipartisanship, but just thinking about my family members who are conservative, not Republicans, but conservative, and believe in limited government, for them, they were completely outraged by this, right? And it was a sense of, yes, the racial issue, the you know, inequity issue, but it was like, yeah, why is the government, why is this local government taking money, like created this infrastructure to take money away from people, right? It would seem that there is a, a, a way to galvanize people despite political party or ideology, because if you believe in, you know, limited government, limited federal government, or even local government in general, you should be able to look at stories like this and say, yeah, no, <laughs> like we have to reform, you know, this situation. And I would think the same thing on, on uh, checking police overall, right? In that why the police are an extension of the government, right? Because they are keeping order, if you say, like, why are they in so much of things that are not issues of crime or public safety, but are issues of, you know, social issues and, and things in terms of our responsibility to, you know, our neighbors and our communities over in general. Why have we given police this much power? And when did it start? Because, you know, it didn't start out like this. Like there have been laws compounding on top of each other to sort of give police or law enforcement this power to, you know, take our property to basically tax us by giving tickets and other things. Like it, it didn't start out this way. So it was a compounding of giving them more responsibility. And it would seem that people who are, you know, for limited government should be on the same side. Well, I'm not sure it's so different historically. I mean, if you were a black person in the South a hundred years ago, it doesn't seem that different right? Policing is still this major threat in your everyday life. And, uh, you know, that, that threat persists. The level of lethality, the, the abuses of convict leasing, these things shift a little bit over time. But the problem here is that while people across the political spectrum might be temporarily outraged about the kind of grossest abuses of policing, when it comes time to talk about the solutions, it very quickly runs up against very powerful vested interests. So if a city that's been created through white flight has been relying on 
using traffic fines and court fees to finance local government has to find some other way to finance itself, well, that means they're going to go looking to people who have money. But it's those people who don't want to be taxed. And so this creates this political problem. In, in addition, those folks with the money also have come to rely on policing as this buffer to protect them from what they perceive as all kinds of threats and disorders in their lives. And so they have invested in this idea that policing can do no wrong, that it is the solution to every problem because it gives them a sense of protection and also the sense that they got what they got because they did the right thing and people who end up you know, being the subject of policing must have done something wrong and must be bad people, which is a kind of myth-making and a reproduction of inequalities. So while we may be outraged, the solution escapes us because of our existing vested interests. And so what we need, this is the real challenge here, I think, is that there's been a tendency to look at these problems and say, well, let's try to come up with a legalistic procedural fix that doesn't really challenge these vested interests because that's all we feel we can accomplish because we just don't have the political power. But those sort of legalistic procedural fixes don't challenge the underlying realities, don't really bring the kind of relief we're looking for, don't really change the broader political problems we're facing. And this is why things like economic inequality along racial lines in the United States is getting worse, not better. These fixes create a regulation, change the wording of a, of a law, create some new training, create some new oversight. These, this is not changing the fundamental facts on the ground. We have to go deeper. We have to begin to directly challenge these vested interests as an assault on racial injustice. And that, that's going to be a bigger lift, and it's going to be uh, you know, terrifying to people, especially where whites have strong political control. And I, I don't have the solution to that, but I know another police training program is not the solution. Well, to that point, you know, I, I said in the beginning that people are on the spectrum in terms of where they land. They, you know, you can have the matter of fact knowing that certain things are wrong, certain things need to be fixed. But in, you know, speaking from and with, older Black folks here in Brooklyn who see the headlines plastered in the Post and the Daily News, not only the headlines, but also a reality in their communities of, you know, young people, older people experiencing violence, right? Their thing is, well, if we, you know, I see all of this happening around me. I see the political conversation and that outrage. I don't want police misconduct. I don't want, you know, police, you know, killing or beating up people in our neighborhoods. But I also need these safety issues in my community addressed. And I feel like they get caught 
and their, emo their, their emotions, their desires, their real desire to actually have the issues in their community addressed gets used in the, in, in the, you know, on the stage, right? And so you'll yeah. see mayors and district attorneys and others and saying like, there's blood in the streets and babies are getting shot and things like that. And, and it sort of appeals to people of motion. It's just like, yeah, I can't, def I can't support defunding the police. I can't support changing this. What we need is reform. We need them to be lighter and gentler, but I need them to address these issues. And, you know, even me as a NAACP leader, understanding that that is where people are and how do you take them on a journey that reform isn't enough, that there has to be a fundamental change in how we address certain issues. And that's not an overnight, a protest or a speech will fix it, right? That is long-term investment in community work that I think gets, treated, you know, just, just, you know, it's bastardized, like from a media standpoint, right? It's like, well, defund the police didn't work. So now what, <laughs> you know, as if it's not a long-term project in terms of how we change how policing is done. Look, uh, I understand totally where people are coming from. You know, uh, I teach at Brooklyn College. My students come from these neighborhoods all over Brooklyn. I see the conditions. I know that people are afraid, they're hurting, they want to live a normal, safe life. Part of the problem, though, is that for generations now, people have been told by elected officials, the only resource they can have to help their communities is more policing and more prosecutions. They, they can't have a new community center. They can't have a fully functional, high quality, you know, mental health care system. They can't have drug treatment on demand for their young people. They can't have the kinds of stable jobs. They can't have the kinds of investments that wealthier, whiter communities have. And so they have had to adjust their demands to reflect the political realities that they've been facing. But it's not working. The police are not producing the kind of safety that people want. The police are not solving the homicides. They're not solving the rapes. The majority of sexual assaults in communities of color are not even reported to the police anymore. No one has faith that that system is going to provide them the kind of security they want. So the, you're absolutely right that holding a big protest saying defund the police is not how we're going to get out of this problem. And politicians like Eric Adams continue to sell people a fantasy that they can have good policing, that they can have police solve their problems without any negative consequences. And this is completely flies in the face of reality. There is no policing without abuse, policing without violence, policing without racial disparities, policing without coercion. That is policing. If you get the police involved, you're going to have those kinds of problems, regardless of body cameras, oversight, and all the rest. That is the history of that institution. What's lacking in the conversation is concrete conversations about what we could do instead that flies in the face of this 
refusal to give us anything other than policing. You know, all over New York City, there are public housing developments with community centers that are shuttered, that have no funding, no services, no staff, because the city puts all the money into policing. And then when folks in a public housing development complain about youth violence, they're told you can have more police, but you can't open the community center. And so then people ask for more police because that's the only thing that's on offer. And it's time to quit accepting the, that false choice of policing or nothing. It's time to start asking for the kinds of things that would really make communities better, more livable places, safer, better quality of life and all the rest. And that doesn't mean that there's some fantasy world where tomorrow there just are no police. You know, that, that doesn't exist as a real possibility. And it's not even what anyone is talking about. If you, if you listen to people who are working in communities who favor reducing policing, what they're doing is they're demanding investments in better strategies for producing public safety. And this is occurring almost entirely in communities of color across the country, led by young people of color, mostly women, who have seen the failure of turning their problems over to police, who want better solutions to their problems. And so we need a new politics that rejects austerity as a given and says, we have ideas in communities for making these communities safer. And we can't just turn this over to a couple of elected officials. We have to create community power. You had uh, Derek Johnson on, I believe last month from the NAACP talking about, we need community-centered leadership. We need community power. And I think that's the reality here, right? We need to build up community power to demand what these communities really want rather than accepting the false choice of policing or chaos. We'll be right back. How can it be that you love the most Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Often, you know, in debates and conversations where people are like, nobody's talking about the violence in East New York. But I'm like, we talk about it every day. Every day. <laughs> like, I'm talking about it every saying, day. Like, when we're saying we need some more places for kids to be, you know, one of the issues that in talking about small things that are criminalized. You know, one of the things that, you know, just really makes me upset and I actually end up, you know, speaking out against police officers, imagine me little something yelling at police officers about this, is the very few places where young people, particularly teenagers, are able to be in a place like New York City. Right. So we don't have, as you're mentioning, we don't have lots of, you know, community centers and people say, oh, you got the why. Well, that you have to pay for that. Right. But there are not a number of places where a kid can just, you know, go that they don't create themselves. Where do they go after school? Where do they go out there? They go hang out around food places. When it's nice outside, they go to, you know, parks or benches, maybe a business area 
like Metro Tech, which is downtown Brooklyn, was a conglomerate of like, you know, corporate businesses. They built a little square or whatever and food and things like that. Small malls and things like that. That's where kids go, right? They want to be together. They want to do kid things. But if you think about it, and if you're just watching your community, particularly when you see lots of groupings, people, uh, particularly of children of color, they are often shooed away or cops are called for them to move away from those areas, right? It's like, we don't want you here. You have to be a patient. I was like, well, I only see kids in the Shake Shack, <laughs> you know, but like they are patrons. Why can't they be just hanging out after school, a group of them, you know, from there? Oh, well, so we don't haven't created places for young people to be. We then criminalize where they congregate and say, you can't be here or you can't go into this store more than three or four, more than three of you at a time. Right. And so it creates this cycle of they are not wanted. They view themselves that way. And we have not provided spaces and places for them to be young people, for them to congregate, have fun. And yes, sometimes they'll get in trouble. Yes, sometimes a fight will happen. All of that is part of, you know, human interactions, right? But that's one of the, just thinking about that and just think about that in your town, in your community, where are places where kids can just go and be? Right. And the difference between sort of communities like East New York or Ferguson and other places or whatever who are similar, where it's predominantly children of color versus wealthier, wider neighborhoods. Yeah, they need places to be and they also need caring adults in their lives. Right. They need to be involved in pro-social activities. So if you look at the life of a teenager in a wider, wealthier community, they have tutors, they're on high quality sports teams, they're in the debate club, there are resources for special classes and activities, and their lives are filled with responsible adults who are able to manage situations, give them positive advice, you know, keep them occupied in positive activities. So that's all really important. And one of the features of the austerity of the educational system we've experienced is the cutting of all these after-school programs, counseling, and positive activities for young people. But let me say something else. If we're talking though about serious violence among young people, that problem runs much deeper. We've got a lot of young people in communities who are really hurting who are living in desperate circumstances, who are living in households that are completely dysfunctional, where there's abuse, where there's been violence, where there's not enough food to eat, where there's no or inadequate supervision. There's young people who have experienced violence in the community, who've been abused. One of the things we know about young people involved in violence and committing violent acts is that they have previously been the victims of serious violence. And nothing has been done to help address that cycle of violence. So we need more than just safe places and supportive environments. We need intensive therapeutic interventions into the lives of young people whose lives are the most disordered, who've been the most traumatized, because these are the young people 
who are most likely to drive violence in the community and to end up in the criminal justice system. I think that's an important part to make because distinction to make in terms of, and that we could say that about a number of things, because even if we're talking about mental health services, right, we've criminalized having a mental health diagnosis. And going back to your earlier point, the what people want is just them to not be in view, to not, not only not be in view, but then we want police officers to just lock them up or to take them away, you know, so that there aren't instances. We've seen a couple of weeks ago where a woman was pushed in the, in the subway, right? But how does policing respond to that effectively? And this is where I go back to changing how policing is done specifically, because the mere presence of a police officer in that space may be a deterrent, say, from someone trying to rob someone or, you know, someone doing a drug transaction or thing like that, but may not necessarily be a deterrent for someone who is experiencing mental health issues, right? Because they are in a different state of mind that they're not even thinking, may not be even thinking about the presence or even see the presence of a police officer as a deterrent for their actions, right? And so that's a different response then. And that means that you maybe should have a trained different response for people who display those kinds of challenges in public that could possibly be a public uh, a public safety issue that respond proactively rather than reacting to you know a violent attack or encounter right and so that's when we're talking about being smarter about how we respond to to you know potential problems and safety issues in our community and it's safer for that person who's experiencing, <laughs> you know, that issue and also safer for the larger community. It's safer to have a trained person in homeless services to be able to provide services to that person. They are entitled to a measure of safety themselves. It's not safe for you to live in a situation on the street in inclement weather, <laughs> right? And so the safety is not just for those who see it, right? Or for those who see the homeless person sleeping on, you know, the bench, and therefore we create benches with spikes so people can't sit there. It's also the safety of the person experiencing (laughs) that issue to begin with. It's so important to think about safety holistically in the way that you're suggesting, right? Like we imagine, for instance, that policing comes without costs, that, oh, we have a safety problem, we introduce policing, and if we prevent one crime, then that's a gain. But what if in the process of preventing one crime, the police kill three people, throw six innocent people in prison because of mistaken identifications, right? Harass an entire community of young people. There's a cost when we put policing into a scenario between a quarter and a half of all people killed by police in the United States are having a mental health crisis. We've systematically defunded mental health services over the last 50 years, leaving families in crisis, individuals living on the streets. And then we're told 
oh, these people are a source of disorder and danger, and therefore we need to send the police. In New York City, police go on almost a quarter of a million of these calls every year. It is a huge part of the everyday life of every police officer. And this idea that, oh, we must have more police because they're dealing with armed robbers and murderers is just ridiculous because they're not. They're chasing homeless people. They're managing people with mental health crises. They're shooing kids off street corners. This is what they do with their actual time. The majority of serious crime is never even reported to the police. People have given up on this because it doesn't work very well and it comes with huge collateral consequences. We need to invest in real public safety strategies that don't come with all these costs. And we have a really good idea of what they are. You know, we need to create non-police mental health crisis teams. We need to create an actual mental health infrastructure for, for communities that need it. We need to create drug treatment on demand. We need to create trauma counseling for young people exposed to violence. We need family supports. We need schools with more counselors and extra curricular activities. We don't need more policing. Well, Professor Vitale, I want to thank you so very much, you know, for this conversation. And where can people find more of your writings, conversations that you are having in your extensive career about these issues? Well, uh, my website, alex-vitale, with an E on the end, uh, dot info, has notices of writings, upcoming appearances, and people can follow me on Twitter, at avitale, to, to get updates on the work that, that I'm doing. Well, thank you so very much for taking the time to be with us this morning, and thank you for your continued work on this issue. Thank you, Joy. I enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back next Sunday with more ways for you to take civic action. Have a good one. Oh,